1: Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm in the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn.
2: Hello and welcome back to the Capital Club Podcast. I'm here with Jennifer Good. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us.
0: My pleasure. Happy to be here.
2: Jennifer is a director with Bernstein Pride Wealth in Washington, D.C. Prior to joining AB, she was a founding partner of Birchstone Moore LLC, a Washington, D.C. boutique law firm focused on estate planning and estate and trust administration. And I'm also a fellow recovering attorney, so welcome to the dark side.
0: Thanks for having me.
2: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I, I read fun. this. I read this article, research paper, that you put together about kind of ESG investing through the lens of being a fiduciary. Mm -hmm. Our show focuses primarily on high net worth individuals and family offices and wealth management firms that oftentimes are dealing with trusts or boards. And the issue of these kind of fiduciary duties and obligations have really come to the fore considering the investing landscape has changed so much, especially with younger generations being involved with some of the allocation decisions being made. So I'm kind of curious as background, you know, how did you find yourself working at AB initially, given, you know, you are a a trust and estates attorney, I think was your focus, right?
0: That's right. Yeah. I was a practicing attorney for just shy of 15 years. I spent the 13 years of that in the estate planning field, working with a smattering of folks from from all different walks of life, but primarily focusing in on the high net worth space and with a specialty in sort of transfer tax and income tax planning, in addition to just generally digging into family structures and making sure that people's legacy was going to be implemented by their estate planning documents. And really, I am self-professed tax nerd. I love research. I love learning. And so Bernstein. Give me the opportunity to focus less on the drafting and and the, the practical side of law, and more sort of on you know, strategy and research and, and all of that. So, I was excited to join their team a little over a year ago. And then this research project—it's—it actually the Bernstein hasn't released a long form research project in almost a decade. So, this is our first foray back into that area, and it's an area that we felt like. There was maybe not a lot of clarity on and maybe some uncertainty and some anxiety for fiduciaries that were considering these strategies and since we have our own responsible investing platform, we felt uniquely positioned to kind of tackle the intersection of trust and estate's law, fiduciary duties and and investing in this area.
2: Yeah, and that's interesting because you know obviously the the DNA of, of Bernstein is that research oriented rigor so. It's good that you all are kind of jumping back in into the pool. Let's start with people who aren't familiar. You'd be surprised, even though it's in the, the nomenclature is really thrown around a lot. Could you maybe give us a useful description of what exactly ESG investing is?
0: Sure. <laughs> yeah, that's actually part of kind of the reason that we wrote the piece. There's a lot of uncertainty, even for folks who are sort of familiar with the concept. There's a lot of uncertainty about different types of strategies and I would note that this is an evolving area in terms of an investing. It really started originally in sort of the 80s with socially responsible investing, not in the 80s, actually, even further back. But when you think of sort of like the Quakers and investing, staying away from so-called sin stocks, so they would refuse to invest in things that were connected to the slave trade, alcohol, tobacco, things like that, where really just kind of the, the moral imperative sort of just ruled out certain investments without any view to the connection that would have to return. And then you saw it evolve in the the 80s into movements to divest from South Africa in opposition to apartheid. But again, you're not really looking at the relationship between that stance and the financial outcome of the investment. And then if you look at the continued evolution, now we find ourselves at a time where you have different types of ESG investing and there really is a, a, a high focus on the impact and the interaction, the relationship between considering E, environmental s social and g governance, and how how the way that companies deal with so for example you know how they impact their local environment or even their the you know the worldwide environment with respect to how they use fossil fuels and or whether they for their renewable energy sources how the company's interaction with that plays a role in their overall performance over the long term. and so now we really have Strategies that, at least in the paper, we break into two different camps. So you've got ESG integration. So this is really where you have a strategy that still has a purely financial goal. It is looking to provide financial return for its investors. What how it's involving the ESG considerations is that it's essentially just inviting more information into the analysis. So in the paper, we actually cite the example of the BP oil disaster. You know, at the time they were sort of implementing some cost-cutting procedures. And so that was actually elevating profits. But what it was also doing was undermining their work safety culture and ultimately then led to this huge environmental disaster, which was also a financial disaster. And so with our ESG integration camp, in order to provide, to better identify companies that will be profitable over the long term, you're inviting that additional information, how they're interacting with their environment, with their workers, with the consumers, and their governance structures into determining how they're going to perform over the long term. Now, so that's ESG integration. And then the second camp is what we call ESG focused strategies. And so these are strategies that have not only a financial goal, but also an ESG related goal. So And we specifically focus on what we call non-concessionary strategies. So these are strategies that are designed to deliver as good as or better than their chosen benchmark. So they're looking to deliver return for their investors, but they're also kind of as a sidecar, they're looking to further an ESG-related goal. So, for example, if you were in a strategy that was really focused on companies invested in the renewable energy sector... You're not only looking to deliver for your investors, but you're looking to find ways that you can push forward the development of and the investment in renewable energy sources as a means of battling, say, climate change. So you have the two together. So that's it was really important to us that we kind of break those two out, because unfortunately, a lot of times in the media and even in research, those two strategies are conflated and they are very different because, again, just breaking it down. They have different goals. And in one case, you actually have an additional goal outside of the financial return. That was probably more information than you did.
2: <laughs> no, it's helpful because it's confusing. You start sharing terms like impact investing, venture philanthropy, using an ESG lens to invest. And obviously, mm-hmm. Wall Street is nothing if not very creative in cr- making products that people you know, feel like they can allocate to. But you really need to go under the hood mm-hmm. to make sure you're, you're achieving what you hope to. You think about kind of Rockefeller divesting out of oil. That was a big, you know, movement 10, 15 years ago that really kickstarted a lot of this conversation. Let's kind of layer on this fiduciary component to it, where you have kind of a best interest obligation. Where do these two kind of things intersect and and what is the challenge that you help people address?
0: Sure. So no man, I'm gonna start just kind of defining who We think of when we think of fiduciaries, at least for purposes of this piece, and we really focused in on three. So the first is trustees of trust. The second would be an individual who is administering a private retirement plan. So their trustees of trust have a certain fiduciary obligations under state law, which is developed over time. Fiduciaries, administrators of private retirement plans, have those have similar fiduciary obligations due to ERISA, a federal law, which really kind of ties in some of that that link with the trust obligation language. And then finally, you have decision makers for nonprofits. They are also subject to fiduciary obligations under state laws, which again, kind of draw from a lot of the sort of trust statutory law and case law. So those were the three folks that we were focused on. And there were two duties that we really zeroed in on that we think are applicable to engaging with ESG investing. The first being the fiduciary duty of loyalty. So this duty says that you have to essentially act in the interests of your beneficiaries. So I'll kind of dig in on the the trust side of things, especially because... There's been some legal commentary in the past couple of years that's created a lot of sort of uncertainty around this duty. And that we felt like was really creating a lot of, again, anxiety for trustees of trusts, which are you know some of the folks that we actually work with. So we wanted to provide a little bit of clarity, a little bit of a, a roadmap for them. So the duty of loyalty, like I said, you have to act in the interest of the beneficiaries. Now, over time, there's been concern about trustees in certain scenarios that would create an incentive for the trustee to maybe act in a way that's disadvantageous to the beneficiaries. And this would be, for example, self-dealing or conflict of interest. So if you've got the trustee on both sides of the transaction, let's say trustee selling property to the trust, trustee as an individual wants to get as much money out of this transaction as possible. Trustee on behalf of the beneficiaries wants to pay as little as possible. Those two things are conflicting forces. And so even if the trustee is doing their darndest to protect the beneficiaries, they may even unconsciously Act in a way that's not in the best interests of the the beneficiaries. So, in those scenarios, under case law, there evolved this concept of the no further inquiry rule, meaning that it just based on the facts of the transaction, you sort of see this embedded conflict that there's going to be a per se violation of the duty of loyalty and the beneficiaries are going to be able to void that transaction. So the idea being the trustees are in a position of power, they're fiduciary, and we want to protect the beneficiaries and allow them to make right what may have gone wrong. And so in in past research, past legal commentary, there was this idea that the no further inquiry rule applied to all sort of factual scenarios where there may have been sort of a third interest, third party interest in play. And so then it became this kind of concept of, well, so if you have an ESG focused strategy, you are sort of thinking about a third interest. So does that automatically create the same per se violation? And what we did to look at that was kind of look and see, you know, that's not really how the no further inquiry rule has been applied over time. And it's not where it's sort of genesis for that no further inquiry rule. Really traditionally, and it's been applied again in self-dealing trustee on both sides or sort of a traditional conflict of interest where you've got someone that the trustee is closely related to or financially dependent on on the other side of that transaction. So, you know, trustee is interacting with their spouse, their business partner. That makes sense. You You would have that no further inquiry rule and try and protect the beneficiaries. But in this scenario, with an ESG-focused strategy, it's not the same type of conflict. This is really impacting strangers around the world. And it aligns more closely to case law that shows that when the trustee is interacting with, say, distant relative or just a business acquaintance, that we don't have that same no further inquiry" rule, really strict standard. Instead, what we have is a best interest standard that just asks that the, benefic- the trustee act in a way that um, doesn't financially disadvantage the beneficiaries. So instead of just looking at the facts of the transaction, we're actually looking at the results. And so if we think about that then in the ESG context, if we are engaging in ESG focused strategy, but it's designed to be non concessionary, meaning that it's going to return the same return as a non ESG related strategy, we don't have a violation necessarily of this best interest standard. We don't have this immediate violation of the duty of loyalty. And I should probably note also, With ESG integration, the goal there is purely financial. There is no thinking of third parties. So I think everyone feels, at least in some of the legal commentary, there's been some consensus that that should be fine from the duty of loyalty perspective, where we're sort of providing a little bit of clarity and shining a little bit of light is on trustees evaluating these ESG-focused strategies. The other duty that we look at is the duty of prudence, which uh, the duty of care is sometimes called. It basically just says that you can think of risk, but in terms of investing, but you need to make sure that there's a sufficient return in exchange for that risk. And so where this kind of applies to ESG investing is a lot of times folks felt that if you were sort of annexing out some of these investments because of you know a moral or social grounds, that you would have less of an ability to diversify. And what we found is A, that when you look at sort of the traditional screens that apply in this ESG field, that it didn't really move the needle in terms of return. So you weren't getting this sort of like hemmed in investment universe just by getting rid of, you know, tobacco and some of the other traditional screens. And the other thing is that it's all in kind of how you do it. So if we are using a broad theme, so for example, we looked at a strategy that was investing. It's an ESG-focused strategy, so designed to return, to deliver a return equal to its benchmark, but also designed to support the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Those goals are really broad, and so we're allowed to really invest in almost all sectors of the marketplace. So we don't have the same concerns about diversification because of the way that we're structuring the strategy. And on top of that, as the fiduciary, let's say you use a really sort of focused ESG-focused strategy, and so maybe you are kind of limited to certain sectors, you can actually balance that out through the rest of the trust portfolio. We're looking for a a balanced plate. And just because you just have peas in one corner doesn't mean that you can't add to it to make sure that you're really getting exposure to all the different sectors and all the different things that you would need to provide for the the beneficiary's best
2: interests. So the (laughs) Highly technical analysis and for people listening, right. that was probably a lot. But again, from a legal perspective, when you speak to litigators or folks that have dealt with, you know, breach of fiduciary duty claims, especially within the trust context, it's always better to have really tight corporate and trust and estate counsel on the front end to avoid Absolutely. what could be interpreted on the back end. So that's kind of the larger context here is. You don't need to fully understand all this, but you do need to appreciate and know the questions to ask and the people Mm -hmm. to have around the table to make sure that if you are implementing an ESG policy or or investment strategy, you're doing it appropriately. Is that fair to say?
0: I'd say that's exactly accurate. I mean, again, it's kind of all in how you do it. What we're saying is that ESG-focused strategies are not totally off the table for fiduciaries. Instead, what they need to do is look at, the historical performance, the portfolio managers, how the strategy is structured, what its goalposts are, and how it, it measures up against its benchmark, and then understand whether or not that strategy can fit inside of an overall portfolio to further the beneficiary's interest. So if these are folks that need a lot of income rather than capital appreciation, does this strategy further those interests? And I absolutely agree with you that it's much better to have, I mean... As a lawyer, it's always, I feel like, you know, a little bit self-serving to say it's good to have lawyers in on the front end of the deal. But definitely when it comes to, you know, trusts and other nonprofits, making sure that you're addressing whether or not ESG investing is, is something that's permitted or even intended to be part of the fiduciaries investing strategy. So it provides a lot of leeway and coverage for the. The fiduciary so that they're not concerned about arguments on the back end of, oh, you know, you, you didn't fully consider the ramifications of this investment or this wasn't what the creator of the trust intended. So we strongly encourage, especially in the nonprofit space, think about whether or not the ESG focused strategy can be part of your mission. And if that's the case, then include it in the mission statement and have an investment policy statement and really think about that in from, from the jump to make sure that your fiduciaries feel comfortable and engaging in that space.
1: Does the current market environment have you reevaluating your investment strategy? There may be alternative opportunities you have yet to consider to safeguard your portfolio. We've created an exclusive guide for Capital Club listeners, featuring the top alternative investments to consider when strategizing for inflation. Download it today at excelsiorgp.com slash download to learn how you can protect your portfolio, diversify your assets, and take advantage of tax benefits in today's market. That's excelsiorgp.com slash download.
2: Yeah, let's go a little bit further there because trying to give people kind of a a granular, actionable guidance here in terms of what is best practice. So if you are working at a nonprofit or you're on a board of a trust or you're a trustee, Mm-hmm. obviously getting trust in the state council involved getting an investment professional involved but do you if it's an existing multi-generational trust and it's been mm-hmm. around for a while you have to go back and, and paper it appropriately or what's what's the typical guidance that you give people there
0: so for an existing trust or let's say an existing nonprofit some of it sort of differs depending on the entity but for let's start with an existing trust so I've got a trust and it doesn't technically address ESG investing. You have the sort of the legal argument that we've laid out in terms of just looking at whether or not it fits the the interests of the beneficiaries. B, there actually are state statutes now that are starting to adopt the environmental, social, and governance objectives of the beneficiaries and considering their overall best interests. There are, I think, about four or five states that have now included that in their law. And then C, it's all about communication. So you can have meetings with the beneficiaries to talk about their views on ESG. You can get their consent prior to investing. Or alternatively, if you're in a state that allows for or that has adopted the uniform trust code, you can actually do something called an accounting. So you can, if you want to show them performance after the fact, you can show them, this is how I invested. This is how I thought about it as part of the overall portfolio and how I could best meet your needs. And then you start a statute of limitations running. So, you know, they sign off on it and then sort of that investment is kind of put to bed from a fiduciary liability standpoint. So, you know, I think that it's always best to, you can also put in place an investment policy statement and again, get the beneficiaries involved. So trying to kind of explain sort of how you're using the strategy and why you're using the strategy is probably the best path forward. And I'd say the same is sort of true in the nonprofit space in terms of Again, you know, talking to your stakeholders, the investment policy statement, making sure that you're thinking about why you're using the strategy and how it fits into the organization's goals, and sort of getting everyone on the same page to kind of head off any conflict later
2: on. So this is, we're going to use generalities here, but you know, typically this is an, this is a issue, or the younger generation is agitating for these type of changes or to implement these types of strategies, what have you seen in terms of, when we use families, multi-generational families that do this well? I mean, we've covered the technical practicalities, but kind of in the boardroom and in practice, what have you seen that really works well? And especially if there's just not opposition from the older generation, but just to to your point, they may not fully understand it. They may not be educated on the subject. Mm -hmm. How do you see it playing out well?
0: So, I would say that I've heard from practitioners in the field that this is definitely an issue, especially when you've got a multigenerational trust. So you have younger beneficiaries who are really excited about these issues, and then you have an older generation individual serving as trustee who is thinking of the 1980s version of it. So I think what really works well is to create a standardized lingo common a common understanding of what it is we're talking about and what are the limitations you know are you are you going to invest in something that's going to lose the trust money no of course not what if you are open to non-concessionary esg focused strategies you know what are the um the esg goals that you're looking for and creating kind of a a conversation having a, for us it's sort of a, a meeting of of the beneficiaries and the trustee to create a space for education about what it is that we're talking about, what we're considering, and what are the interests of the beneficiaries. So how is the trustee and through their investment, how are they meeting those needs and what are those needs and creating just a general consensus over sort of next steps. So that's, I think, been our experience is, again, creating a space for communication, education, and better understanding sort of what the role of the strategy is in terms of investment and then overall serving the beneficiaries.
2: There's a lot of talk about companies greenwashing challenges in terms of screens and filters and actually performing diligence on some of these firms, you know what they're doing versus what they're saying in in the public spotlight especially. How do you, you know, advise families in terms of how to go about implementing this in granularity and then protect yourself obviously if it turns out that, you know, this firm or this name that you invested in was actually, you know, not doing what they said they were going to be doing. Mm -hmm. And it turns out to be, you know, counter to the ESG thesis.
0: Gotcha. So it's really important in today's world because you're right, there are concerns about greenwashing and there's not a ton of consistency or standardization in terms of what counts as ESG and what doesn't. And I think you've seen some movement from the SEC to try and kind of at least standardize terms and create a little bit of accountability. I would say that for a fiduciary, the recommendation would be to, again, sort of look at the historical performance, look at the project managers, their process in terms of determining what's material. That's a huge issue within ESG investing because just because a company has a diversity and inclusion policy, is that actually being implemented? Is it actually material to the financial performance of the company? And and I would say the same for, so one of the examples is, You've got a bank and it's got solar panels on the roof. That's great. That's a great for the environment around it, I suppose. But it's not actually material to The banks function. What would be far more material is the way that it protects its data. Does it protect its its employees so that there's not constant turnover? So I think looking at how the person in charge of the strategy is determining materiality how they are determining sort of the financial performance of the company. And then a big issue right now is how do you determine the goalposts for the ESG goal? Because it is hard. There's not exactly the straight line like there is for financial goals between trying to further, you know, say a more inclusive employment field and making sure that your companies have policies in place. You know, hopefully that's moving the ball in the right direction. But how do we actually distill that down to actual markers to see that we're actually making a difference?
2: Yeah, it's, and it's changing rapidly, right? That's, that's kind of the, the bigger challenges. You know, some people that, you know, were champions of ESG investings originally have now kind of gone back on themselves. But at the end of the day, I think there is a way to kind of match this public purpose profit mm-hmm. in, a, in a, in a thoughtful way. What was your biggest surprise going through this research and, and diving really deep into this subject matter?
0: I think my biggest surprise was the lack of consistency right now in terms of the media around this issue, in terms of even some of the research. I mean, it's really, it's a new area and it is evolving pretty rapidly. You know, for a long time, ESG investing it was it thought to be synonymous with sort of growth stocks. And there are actually strategies now that are being developed that focus on value stocks. So it's it's kind of continuing to grow and change. And so when you look at some of these studies, there are sort of meta studies that take place over 10, 15 years, you're getting a lot of different types of strategies, a lot of different practitioners in this field kind of lumped together. So there's been inconsistency. And so I think for me, it was just sort of learning to appreciate all the different perspectives and points of view, but trying to kind of figure out sort of what I could disregard and what was material. I mean, it was a kind of funny enough sort of like an ESG analysis itself trying to figure out what's real and what's not and what's marketing and so i can only imagine how hard it would be for an investor if, if me and this is this is my job and i'm spending all this time and effort on this if i'm sort of lummoxed and confused going through all these different studies i can't imagine someone who's just trying to they're trying to find a good strategy that can you know push both financial and non-financial goals forward how do they weed through all of the the noise that's coming at them and so that made me feel really good about this piece, because I'm hoping that it can at least serve as a resource for them in doing so.
2: Yeah. And it's, you know, it's it's much easier to implement these strategies and these allocations as a, in a rising market environment. Mm-hmm. The last 12 months have been challenging, obviously. And that's when the recriminations and the finger pointing come out.
1: Mm-hmm. What
2: are you hearing and feeling from your clients right now in terms of this issue being discussed internally, be it on the nonprofit space or the the family trust space.
0: You know, I think that ESG investing is not focused on the short term. You know, we are focused on the long-term performance of the companies. So I think, you know, sort of volatility in the short term was, was never going to be really definitive when it comes to whether or not ESG investing is a good idea or not. And I would say that the point of this piece is not to say that everyone should invest in ESG investing. The idea is really to provide a tool set for fiduciaries. So if there are folks that are feeling uncomfortable with this form of investing now, you know, our goal is to really help them better understand, is that based on just sort of, you know, scare in the media, things that are making you uncomfortable, or is it realistic? Is it actually impacting the strategy that you're involved with? And how can you, again, just sort of separate, separate up the sort of the, scare tactics or, or incriminations from what's actually material to the strategy. So I think that we are hearing a request for information just to better understand, is this real, is this not? And how does this affect me? And that's part of our goal is just to help provide them with the tools to um, to better understand that.
2: Well, along those lines, I was going to ask, you know, you're, it's not an article. It is a legitimate research paper <laughs> that's, you know,
0: 70 some footnotes. Lo-
2: 80 accounted 80 footnotes and very much or 79 sorry very much kind of law review style and yeah. you know everything's attributed so to that point i mean is there a single source of truth on this issue it seems like it's melding state by state case law probably a lot of delaware case law but is there a kind of a federal or a nonprofit that is out there kind of giving people guidelines and best practices. Where can people, obviously the article, but if they wanted to go deeper, where would they go?
0: Yes, we are the one true source of information on this. (laughs) Not at all. So I will tell you just quickly, you had said it's like a law review article. It's actually being published in the ABA Real Property Trust and Estates Law Journal. It'll be coming out in February. So we're very excited. It will be part of a law journal. (laughs) That's awesome. All of its footnotes. So you're right. I mean, it's interesting in terms of like the Investing side of things, I mean, that's a strategy by strategy analysis. And so we try and provide in the piece, you know, some just general review of sort of the impacts of screening and and things of that nature. On the fiduciary law side of things, the thing that does make it a bit more complicated is that it is a state by state process. So each state has its own statutes that govern the fiduciary duties as they apply to trustees, as they apply to profits. The thing that's somewhat helpful is that a lot of them adopt uniform laws. So you have the uniform trust code, you've got the the mytha, which applies to nonprofits. So there's a little bit of consistency among the states. Beyond that, there's also common law, which is basically case law that's been developed over time. And there is something referred to as the restatement, which has very smart people that get in a room every year and kind of look over all of the case law coming from all the different states and then try and synthesize that law into overreaching principles. As they apply to the fiduciary duties and and to to both trusts and and nonprofits and so that's what we really looked at for or at least i looked at for the purposes of this piece is that we tried to key it to their statement to sort of general overview of case law and then also the the uniform trust code and some of the uniform laws so that's kind of a i guess it should be a bit of a disclaimer that you know in your own state your state law applies so this is a general overview of the laws that currently stands, but there are going to be sort of little intricacies based on where you're actually located. In terms of other areas to look, other resources, there's a fair amount of s- some professors have really sort of focused in on this. My personal favorite is Susan Gary, who's at the University of Oregon, I actually had her input on some of this, and she and I presented together earlier this year. She's fantastic. She's done a lot of writing in this space. so. Unfortunately, I think a lot of the you know sort of the the credible sources on this topic are going to be law reviews. They're going to be from attorneys, so it, it's it's kind of hard to find a really easy layperson's resource for this kind of stuff.
2: Well, Jennifer, you know, kudos to all the work you put into it. It's a really great research paper, and I encourage people. We'll include a link in the show notes to to access it. If people are interested in connecting with you, the work you're doing at a b or they want to check out. The, the research piece directly and hear a commentary, what's the best way for them to connect with you?
0: Sure. Probably through our website at Bernstein. And you can always contact me directly on my email, which is jennifer.good at com. You can look at my bio, which says, I believe the tagline is research is my intellectual adventure. So just cementing what a complete nerd I am, but I'm okay with that. <laughs> I
2: love it. Well, for <laughs> listeners, please do uh, I encourage you to check out the uh, peace and, and to connect with jennifer and please do leave us a review and let us know your favorite part of this conversation and jennifer something that we ask people that come on the show do you have a daily practice that helps bring peace to your life
0: oh this is such a cheeseball answer but probably snuggling with my kids i've got to there's cons- no
2: such thing as cheeseball answers to this <laughs> question
0: my youngest is pretty much a stage five clinger so he mm. demands snuggles every morning and, and pretty much every night but there's something really lovely about just i don't know you know close your eyes lean into the hug and enjoy the moment.
2: Love it. Perfect. Well, Jennifer, thank you again for joining us today. I look forward to staying in touch and keep up the good the good work and congrats on making the uh, Law Journal. That's, that's very admirable. So kudos.
0: Very excited. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a real treat.
2: Okay, take care.
1: Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review and stay tuned for our next episode coming soon.